All right, well, good evening, everybody. Everybody can hear me okay? I can shout if need be, but I'd rather not. But uh, appreciate everybody being here tonight, and we're going to, uh, let's start things off with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll begin. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we thank you for all the many ways in which you teach us, and Lord, we pray that tonight, or that this would be more than just learning, or that this would really genuinely feel like and be equipping, Father, that you would so shape us and work in us and through us that we would be fully prepared to engage in ministry around us. Lord, that you would take specific aspects of what we talk about tonight and, Father, use them in specific ways within our own families, amongst our own friends, and all the places wherein you've placed us, that you may be honored and glorified in all that takes place here tonight and, Father, in all the ways in which we take what we learn and use it for your great glory. So, Father, we ask by your Spirit that you would lead us and guide us. We pray that you would grow us in ways that would bring you glory and honor. And, Father, we do pray for all of the many people who are here tonight. And, Father, we pray for the many people that we know that are hurting. And, Lord, uh, we ask a special prayer as well for Chris Bryan. And, Lord, pray that you would uh, have your hand upon him as he continues to recover from surgery. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, what we would have read, of course, up through tonight, we talked a little bit about the first chapter and the introduction, uh, so hopefully uh, you've read chapters 1 and 2, talking about not only for the purpose of godliness, but also uh, Bible intake. So part of what we'll talk about is going to come from the book, but not very much of it, because part of I mean, this is really getting into the details of what it means to, you know, pick up and embrace the disciplines of following Christ. And being a disciple is really the whole picture that's being laid out there. Uh, So we'll connect the dots between uh, chapter 2 that we read already and chapter 3. So I'm going to ask you for next week to read, or next week, next month, uh, to read chapters 3 and 4. Uh, because what, I'm, what I want to see happen, and after that we'll just do one chapter at a time, but to see how these things are tied together in very specific ways. So we'll be talking about for the purpose of godliness. We talked a lot about that the last time. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about not only Bible intake in terms of reading Scripture, but really emphasizing on meditating upon Scripture, which if you read ahead a little bit, that's a little bit of what's talked about in chapter 3. Uh, but I'm not going to just rehash material from the book. We're going to talk about it from a very helpful uh, Puritan perspective, but we'll get that uh, in just a second. So as we think about, you know, from the book, there's a lot of good things to be uh, to glean from. I mean, you think of, you know, the public reading of Scripture and the preaching and teaching in the church, and you think of all the ne- necessary ways in which God has allowed us to have a lot of interaction with Scripture. Uh, We have Sunday school classes, which are such a profound benefit to where we have the opportunity to ask questions, and it's a much more laid-back environment, or or circumstances like this, or even just spending time, Lord willing, you're doing that on a regular basis, in His Word, and doing so in such a way that we're not just sort of doing the drop-and-flip method, right, where you just sort of like, okay, what's He going to say today, and, you know, blessed are those whose way is blameless, and... And now, O priest, this command is for you. And they're like, okay, here we go, right? That's not how we're supposed to read Scripture. Uh, And Lord willing, that's not what you're doing. But it does helpfully sort of lead us into seeing how much we actually need this. 
I mean, there was a passage, a verse of scripture we talked about in our uh, small group Sunday school class this morning. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is what we need. God has provided this because he knows we need it. It's another di- display and gift of his grace that he would give us anything of Scripture at all, to know him. Now, you know, in thinking of some of the details of the book, uh, granted, this book was written a while ago. So some of the statistical analysis, even as bad as it was that time, it's worse now. I mean, we're talking about some, somewhere between five, really about three percent of the American population has anything close to what would be referred to as a biblical worldview. I mean, we're talking about, and really all of that would come from a right understanding of Scripture. Now, many of you have done all manner of Bible studies, right? And you've probably done things with the inductive method of Bible study, right? Anybody familiar with all that? Yeah, Jill, you want to throw us a, a bone here? In inductive Bible study, what are the aspects of doing that? Yes, right? I mean, it's very clear, very pointed, and so we're reading text within context. It's always helpful to learn that way, because you would never, in any other circumstance, drop a book and read one, one sentence here and open it up, you know, six pages later and read that sentence there and be like, see, that makes sense. Would you? But if you notice, that's what happens when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house. Because the wrong understanding of Scripture. What they'll do is they'll say, well, see, this verse here says this. They'll read three words from one verse over here, and then they'll go over here and read another verse here and see these, th- these two things agree. Like, that's not even how the word, how the English language works. Those things don't agree at all. But in order to combat that, we have to ri- have a right understanding of God's Word ourselves, which is why it's so helpful just to be intentional in thinking about our intake, our hearing and studying of Scripture uh, that he referred to here. Now, y'all remember the story that he talked about with the guy who was reading Braille with his tongue, right? Does that make you appreciate your Bible or what? Yeah, appreciate your eyes, appreciate what God has given us. I mean, it's profound to think about that kind of love of Scripture. And Lord willing, that would be our hearts as well. But we would just bear the benefit of not having to read Braille with our tongues and enjoy God's Word in that way. Now, there are all, when you talk about Bible intake and all manner of things, we usually, I mean, many of us have a bunch of Bibles sitting around the house, right? Many people have a lot of Bibles that they just never open. Uh, and this is not new to uh, biblical Christianity in any way. There was a, a sermon, it's another quote from Spurgeon that's quite convicting, uh, as he was preaching one time about God's Word, and this is what he said to his congregation. He said, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. That's pretty in your face, isn't it? What's, I mean, what's he getting at? He's talking about what a treasure we have. And it's not simply about, you know, feeling this sort of legalistic pursuit to jump in there and i got to read my Bible or i got to do the read through the Bible plan and make sure everything's checked off so when I get to the end of the year I can do this. It's not about that. 
This just provides a helpful structure or any which way you work your way through God's word. It provides a a helpful structure and plan for taking it in, for delighting in the Lord, for delighting in his word, for focusing upon him. Now, he talked a little bit about memorization of scripture, you know, and there's all manner of helpful ways of doing that. Uh, If any of you are familiar with uh, the corner room, we... Kenny and I were talking about this the other day. It's a, it's a group that uh, basically the only lyrics to any of their songs are Scripture. Now, granted, not all of their songs are the next big thing, okay? But they are very helpful, and some of them are really well done to just get God's Word in your mind and in your heart, thinking about it, because when we put things to melody, we easily remember them. I mean, even when I say that. Uh, there's within my heart a melody, and it's like, okay, the song just starts to pour out of my mind. Even just key words like that. So we, we need those sorts of things. Not only memorization for just learning for ourselves, but it's helpful when we're sharing Christ with somebody. How helpful it is to just be able to pull it out. Well, God's Word says, Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? To just be able to pull it out is extremely helpful. It's extremely helpful in life to be able to pull these things out, to meditate upon Scripture in such a way that it's just impressed upon our minds. But when we talk about, and this is where we get into the next chapter, and you know, I'm not going to pull out everything from the book, and just we're going to start to step away a little bit, but in thinking about meditation upon Scripture, and we use these words, or this word, meditation, biblical Christian meditation is very different from Near Eastern meditation. I mean, if you get into a Buddhist worldview and what they're doing in meditation, what they're trying to do is not think about anything. They're basically trying to think themselves into oblivion about nothing. Because once they get to actually thinking about nothing, then they'll be absorbed into the divine. That's nirvana, right? You just lose all sense of self and everything else. In biblical meditation, we're taking truth We have a focus and a content that we are focusing upon the truth that we would know and walk with and glean from the truth giver, that it leads us directly to him. And there are all manner of ways of doing this, of, you know, repeating, and the book gets into this, repeating it in different ways, rewriting it, thinking about application, praying through it, not rushing, making application of it, because really, if you're not meditating upon scripture, you're not going to apply it well. It's very easy for us to just read a couple of verses of Scripture, you know, while we're running out the door and not give it another thought. But we're going to make a very poor application of it if we're trying to do it on the run. I don't know if there's any marksmen in here, but it's hard to make a shot when you're running. Right? I mean, it's one thing to hit a moving target. It's a whole other thing if you're moving. Right? It's difficult. We have to make make sure that this is worth our time enough, that Christ is worth enough, that we would slow down in walking through our intake and our focus upon Scripture. So as we think about meditation, one of the most helpful explanations of this, and really I'm going to lean heavily upon a guy named Stephen Yule. Uh, He is a professor at uh, Southwestern Seminary. 
Uh, if you wanted to just go through some wonderful podcasts, I don't know if you're a podcasty kind of person, but if you are a podcasty kind of person, you can look him up. Uh, All of Life Before God is uh, a Puritan conference that took place a couple of years ago. There's like 20-something episodes of it, but two of them are Stephen Yule. Uh, Y-U-I-L-L-E. Yeah, not how you would think you would spell it. He's Canadian, for what it's worth, right? So as he talks about meditation of Scripture, and really he's talking about it from a Puritan perspective. What he's talking about is, and this is a quote from him, enforcement of truth upon the soul for practical purposes. So it's not simply a right understanding of Scripture, and it's not simply taking in Scripture, but it's taking in Scripture and thinking about it processing it, and then pressing it into our soul, the faculties of the soul, wherein we make decisions, right? How we think about things, how we aim, and how we process our own affections, which is a lot of what we're going to get into here tonight. So thinking about the enforcement of truth upon the soul for practical purposes. Because in the end, if we're not functionally using all of this truth, What is it that we're actually doing, right? We're meant to bear a benefit from this, which is part of why we would talk about this as an equipped session, because it's something that we're being equipped with, not so that we can just put it in our pockets or stuff it in a drawer somewhere, but so that when we're doing ministry with our families, or when we're doing ministry with our friends, or when we're trying to reach our neighbors that we've never met before, we've got something that we're equipped with. It's meant for practical purposes, for use. And so this is, uh, sorry for the sleepy screen here, and I know it's insanely bright, so, uh, yeah, and you're still welcome, but my cursive is terrible. So as we think about uh, meditation of Scripture, and you think of the affections of the soul, so every decision is based on what we deem to be good and what we deem to be evil. And so for the Puritans, they would basically divide this up, that we function on the basis of two primary affections. All of life functions on the basis of two primary affections. Anybody want to give a, a guess as to what the two primary affections are? Love and hate. That's exactly right. So we'll do a big... Right? Love. Now... I can't draw a gator very fast, so I'll just draw a circle. And I'm going to write some in all caps and some not because that's, anyway, maybe, right? So love and hate. So these are the two primary affections that we function on the basis of. So we are inclined towards the things that we deem to be good, which we love, and we are disinclined from the things that we deem to be evil, those things that we hate. And so the biblical doctrine meditated upon, biblical truth meditated on, pressed into the affections, that our affections would be ordered by God's word, so that we would love what God loves and hate what God hates. See what's going on here? But the only way that we're going to be able to do this is in meditation upon scripture, of taking the truth in and then pressing it into our lives. Now, and Stephen Yule goes into great length, and you can listen to one of the podcasts 
goes into great length about this is not the same thing as contemplation. Especially if you would ask one of the, you know, the, the Puritan scholars. They're, contemplation is the bare gazing upon God and, and the sort of idea that it's unmediated because you're sort of trying to glean things about who God is, not from Scripture. You ever been around stuff like that? Is it more common than we realize? Yeah. Does it come up in conversation when, that you have with people? I mean, you have a conversation about any number of things. And next thing you know, somebody's going to bring up, well, I heard Jesus said this. Like, where'd you hear that from? He didn't say that. Well, I heard some, such and such about this. I'm like, that's not even remotely true. We have a clear reference to go to, to lean into, and to glean every way in which we can understand apply, meditate upon, and then govern our affections so that we love what is good and we hate what is evil. And so as the Stephen Yule teaches, and helpfully so, in talking about love, that your affections are going to have two main expressions depending on the proximity to the object of your love or your hate. So if you are absent from the object of your love, So if you're down here, right, you would have desire because you're absent from the object of your love. If you are with the object of your love, and I don't know what that is, you would have delight, right? I mean, you can think about this in terms of relationships. You think about marriage. Right? So if I'm not with her and she's not in the room right now, so there's a sense of desire of wanting to be with her. Because she's the object of my love. When I see her when she gets home from work tomorrow, or I see her whenever she drops the kids off, right? There will be a sense of delight because she's there. We're in proximity with one another, right? We make decisions on the basis of these things, and so that as we get this right biblically, that's going to change the things that we desire and the things that we delight. Delight yourselves in the Lord, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats in the uh, seat of scoffers, but his is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there are affections. So then this becomes the framework by which we make decisions about things. So we, we are wanting to have a right understanding of loving what God loves. Now, is there an objective way of us knowing what God loves? Yes, truth, scripture. So we have a very clear expression here of what God loves. So we are basically taking the character of God, the revelation of God, Pressing it into our lives, that it would shape our affections, and so that we would make decisions on the basis of the same framework that God has made decisions. Isn't that helpful? Very helpful way of thinking about things. Now, it works the other way as well. Because there are things that God hates. What does God hate? Okay, evil. Sin? Yeah, pride? Right. What are we going to say, Ellie? Okay, lying. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, hate has two primary expressions as well. So, if you are uh, away from it, so here's 
We'll talk about love in terms of Meredith. We'll talk about hate in terms of mayonnaise, okay? <laughs> For what it's worth, I hate mayonnaise, okay? So if I go to a fast food restaurant and there's some notion of uh, the fact that I may wind up with mayonnaise on anything, right? And in any form. Right? You can bury chicken in it and pickles and everything else. I don't care. It's still mayonnaise. Right? Tartar sauce, still mayonnaise. We can go on down the list. I hate it all. Okay? So I hate it. So the idea, so I may be abs absent from the object of my hatred, but in so doing and thinking about that, there's a fear that goes along with that. Right? It's not around, but it's looming. There's some... Someone back there who's not paying attention, who's going to squirt that on my hamburger, and I'm going to be like, look, dude, I can't do it. I don't want this. I'd rather not eat. Okay? But at the same time, when you think about our proximity, so if somebody does get it on my hamburger or whatever else, looks like I'm dragging a bunch of fingers, right? There it is. Sorrow, grief, what did you do? Because now I am present with the object of what I hate. The same idea as we think about truth being impressed upon the soul, right? That we would fear the things that are, we would fear the notion of staying away from the things that we hate. And we would have sorrow when we come close to the things that we hate. So if we're exercising or living in a way that is, full of pride. We would hate the things that God hates and it would bring sorrow to our hearts to draw near to them. See what's going on here? It's a helpful framework of thinking through the meditation of Scripture. Because in governing our affections in this way, and I'm sorry it's so sloppy looking, but in governing our affections in this way, it's going to help us make decisions. But see, this is also going to help us in the ways in which we have conversations with people. Because when you start getting into anything or any conversation about anything, inevitably, people are going to have to make decisions upon things. We're going to talk about things that we love. Now, not all of us in here agree about sports, right? Which is why I didn't use a sports metaphor over here. We don't agree upon these things. However, in Christ, we agree on the things that God has revealed. So we can love the things that God loves together, and we can hate the things that God hates together. Now, in so doing, he's shaping our affection so that as we make application of the truth of God's word in our own lives, we are doing so in such a way that all, all of the ways that we walk step by step in faithfulness to Christ, we are doing so in a way where the truth of Christ is being pressed into our lives. So the meditation, meditating upon Scripture is not simply that we're just learning for the sake of our own benefit, but that we're actually in learning for the sake of our own benefit. We're actually being shaped for the glory of God. And that in being shaped for the glory of God, it changes the way we live our lives. So that as we fix our affections on the proper objects, loving what God loves and hating what God hates, our decisions follow suit. But this is only going to happen with a right meditation.
upon Scripture. So it does entail, as we think about this book, it does entail a sense of intake. We've got to take it in. We've got to make the time to take it in. But in making the time to take it in, not only are we just reading it, rightly understanding it, rightly applying it, but then, to use Stephen Yule's definition, enforcing it upon the soul. This framework changes how we parent, or it should, shouldn't it? Because we should make decisions within our own homes on the basis of what God loves and on the basis of what God hates, right? This changes the way we think of marriage. That marriage should function in a way in which it expresses what God loves and avoids what God hates. As we think about talking with people who don't have a biblical worldview, reaching people with the gospel, we have to understand that without biblical truth in their minds, this is all out of sorts. And in often, in often cases, it's completely reversed. But do we have an answer for that? We do. What is it? The gospel is the power of God for what? Yes. There was a time in all of our lives when our worldview was just completely contorted and messed up before we knew Christ. Now, we may not have thought it through in the same way, organized pattern that they did. But the fact of the matter is it was the same mess. We need the truth of Christ. We need to see this so that we can even talk about this in an organized way with people who might completely disagree with us. How can you say that God hates this? Well, I can show you verse of Scripture. God clearly says this. But we also need to be careful whenever we go down that road. Oftentimes, we get selective about these things, don't we? We sort of take our... Whether it's a political hot bunch, I'm not saying avoid any of it. I'm saying include all of it. There are things that God hates. But we should be clear about that. Because in a, in a lot of ways, for God to make this so clear biblically is an invitation to come to know Him. You don't want to walk into the wrath that you're storing up for yourselves. God's kindness is meant to lead us to what? Repentance. Where do we get that from? The Bible, right? Romans 2. So the application of truth in our own lives, that we will pour out what we are full of. So as you make application and you're you know, trying to engage the people around you, right? So as we think about the ways that we've structured, you know, equip and engage, and where we are in our own uh, church structure and, and the pattern, and so we're trying to reach out to people who are around us and reach out to those uh, that God has basically just plopped into our lives. That as we make application of that truth and engage in that way, we go with our minds and our hearts living out this, not only so that our words can reach out to people, but that our lives will display a living expression of the truth as well. How many of y'all grew up in a home where you had 
wonderful Christian parents. Yeah? Sorry, it's unfair, right? She's sitting right next to you. Yeah. A little unfair for you too, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, what a blessing though, right? For them to live that out. Because it wasn't one of those things where it was just, let's do our sort of church thing or whatever else. But it, it encompassed all of life. And next thing you know, you're having conversations about all manner of things over, you know, it could be a, on the way to a basketball game. It could be in the car going to the restaurant to avoid a mayonnaise slathered hamburger. It could be, you know, sitting around doing yard work or whatever else and talking about the worldview and, you know, the things that matter, the things that God hates. I can remember as a little boy, and I've shared this story before, as, you know, I was in elementary school and my mom has always had a heart for the whole uh, pro-life issue. And uh, I can remember as a little boy standing next to my mom as we were outside of an abortion clinic praying. And there was a whole slew of people protesting the fact that we were just standing around praying. And as I'm standing there as a fourth or or fifth grade little boy holding my mom's hand, I look across the street in the line of protesters and I start naming off teachers from the school. I'm like, Mom, there's such and such. Mom, there's such and such. Mom, there's such and such. She's like, I know. We don't agree on this. She's like, but we live our lives on the basis of God's word. And they don't. So we should tell them. Right? I was a little boy. Teachable moment? Yeah, I'm still talking about it now, right? These teachable moments fall into our laps oftentimes. These opportunities to sow the seed of the gospel are usually not the opportunities where we just have it all planned out. We're like, this is exactly how the conversation is going to go. I'm going to say this. They're going to say that. I'm going to say this. They're going to say that. Then they're going to pray to receive Christ, and I'm going to go my merry way. Is that usually how it works? No. Almost never. You ever had one of those circumstances where you planned out the whole conversation, as soon as you get there, everything goes to pieces? That's like every day, isn't it? This is what I'm going to say. And you start off, and it's like, okay, that's not even close. And off we go. But see, if we're equipped with God's Word, equipped not only in the sense of knowing and having it in our minds, but having it lived out in our lives, then we're equipped in a different way, aren't we? Our lives are different. Our lives are a pointer to look to Christ. That's true as we talk about engaging the family. But that's also true as we talk about engaging your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones. This is how God works. And oftentimes, the harvest comes, and it could be years later. You may not even know about it. I remember listening to a, a story of uh, an evangelism professor I had in, uh, in seminary, and he was telling the story of a guy in Australia who just spent this inordinate amount of time. He was always doing street evangelism, right? And he was always so, and it was very, like, not in your face, like smack you with the sandwich board kind of street evangelism, but very calm, very sort of timid almost, and just sharing Christ with people. And it was like one after the other, be like, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. Well, this guy is uh, over in the United States preaching, and all of a sudden, 
a guy comes forward after he's done preaching, they start to have this conversation, and he starts to tell them this story. He's like, you know, I was over in Australia for business, and uh, this guy shared Christ with me. I didn't really think anything of it, and he's like, and God woke me up in the middle of the night, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I, you know, I, I found the Bible and opened it up to what he was talking about, and he said, I gave my life to Christ. Well, the guy, go, the, the pastor guy is like, you know, this is amazing. And so he, he goes to another place and he's preaching somewhere else. And somebody has almost the exact same story. He was in Australia, having to have a conversation with this guy who was on the street and everything else. And so eventually it gets to where it's like, well, I've got to find this guy in Australia because this keeps coming up. Well, eventually he goes to what he was like Straight Street or something in, in some city in Australia. And so he finally comes finds this guy, starts asking around. It's like, you know, is there this little timid guy who stands out on the street and tells people about Jesus or whatever else? And some of the people in the neighborhood are like, oh yeah, this is where he lives. He lives over here. And finally, they make it to his door and the guy knocks on his door and he's like, you know, are you the guy? And he's like, oh yeah, 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 I'm the guy. He's like, I'm about to just give up and quit. He's like, I've been doing this for decades. Never seen any fruit from it. I've never known of anybody who's, nobody's in front of me has ever trusted Christ. I've never seen any result whatsoever from all of this. And the guy's like, oh, I've got some stories to tell you. And it was like one after the other, after the other, after the other. of People who had come to faith in Christ through this guy's just faithful, steady witness. He had no idea. Lives were transformed all over the world. And you think of the second and third generation of Christians as these people come to faith in Christ and then go lead other people to faith in Christ in just the broad impact of just sowing the seed of the gospel. We should be reminded of that, the power of God's word. I can tell you a more personal story. I've shared this with some of you all before. When Meredith worked at the bank, Bank of America, so she worked at the bank whenever she was going through college, and whenever we moved to Fort Worth from Fort Myers, she was working with the bank, so she transferred with a bank from Fort Myers to Fort Worth, and so she stayed working over there. Well, the whole time we were in Fort Myers, she was sharing Christ with a girl over and over and over again. When we were engaged, when we were married, we would, you know, her and her husband were having some issues, and so we would, you know, hang out with them and watch their children sometimes so that they could go out on dates and other things. And so this went on for the whole time we were in Fort Myers. So we eventually move, we leave. And I know for some of y'all young folks, this was back before social media was a big thing, right? We lost touch. But when social media became a big thing, this girl Tara finds Meredith on Facebook. I'm like, hey, been looking for you. I'm like, oh, hey, good to hear from you. How's it going? Well, I got to tell you something. All those things that you were telling me for years and years and years and years, God finally opened my eyes to see. She had come to faith in Christ. We didn't have any idea. She had come to faith in Christ because of Meredith's faithful, steady witness with the gospel in her life. Five years later, this girl's like, hey, my life is completely transformed by the grace of Christ. The point of all of that is to say, we just don't know how broad your impact's going to be as we walk in faithfulness with the gospel. You think of how many mamas have sowed the seed of the gospel in the lives of their children, pass away, and don't see it come to fruition. But eventually it often does, doesn't it? I mean, I think about my brother. My mom faithfully sowing the seed of the gospel in his life and all the stuff that he went through. That was just, I I can remember 
And my mom's not here, so I can remember my mom being on her knees in tears praying for my brother for years. Did it bear fruit? Yeah, after 20 years of addiction and living hard, God transformed his life, and he loves the Lord right now. It matters. So our intake of the truth, our talking about being equipped with the truth of God's word, is not this sort of exercise in religious legalism. We're not learning things to check off the box. That these things are to be gleaned and walked in and known so that we may sow it and pour it into the lives of those who are around us. Because you can look around at the people that we meet on a regular basis, the people that we know, the people that God has put in our lives right in front of us, so many of whom need to know the truth, whose lives are all out of sorts, and they love what God hates, and they hate what God loves, and their lives tell the tale. It's hard to watch. Who alone can change the heart? Does he? Yes. So not only do we need to focus on intake and meditation, but we need to think about pressing it into our lives. That as it's pressed into our lives, it is then poured out into the lives of others as well. Be that your family, be that your friends, be that your neighbors, be that anybody that is around you on a regular basis. So as we think about sort of reflecting on all of this, because I know it's a lot to sort of chew on and all those sorts of things, you know, how would one make application of this in an evangelism context? This is an actual question, not a hypothetical one. Is it possible? It is. Is it possible to have a conversation about, you know, asking people what they love? It's an easy open door, right? And, you know, you get into the things, the, the trivial things, sports, those sorts of things. You get into all manner of other things. Well, what else do you love, you know? And it becomes an open door. Well, well where does that come from? Why do you love that? What is it about that that you what is it that's leading you to love better here? Well, who's the source of all? And all of a sudden, in just asking a few questions, you're starting to open the door of conversation. It's like, well, well, maybe I don't really know. Maybe I need to know. Is there a place I could learn? Like, here you go. These things matter. That if we think about it, even our own Bible, and, and, and you know, this is a question that's, we could derive from the book itself. I mean, it's, it's in fact one of the questions that he asks. As we think about all of this for the purpose of godliness, and just step away from this for a second, is your growth in godliness, if your growth in godliness were measured by the quality of your Bible intake, what would be the result? See, a lot of times we measure our Bible intake by quantity. Which is why we laugh on our Wednesday night Bible study when it's like, yeah, we just read 35 chapters of Exodus or whatever. And it's like, you know, it's a lot. But if all we're doing is gauging by quantity, what we're ultimately doing is just speed reading through things. And when you speed read through things, do you remember it very well? It's like reading articles on your phone. 
I mean, much as we think we glean most of it, if you had a newspaper, I guarantee you'd remember more of it. It's one of the reasons I would encourage you to read your Bible in this format. Unless, well, it's not in there. Unless your phone is absolutely necessary. You'll remember it better. You'll focus better. Because it's not going to ding at you. It's not going to ring in the middle of your reading. This is enough. It helps us to have this kind of thing to focus on. But if our growth in godliness were measured by the quality of our Bible intake, what would be the result? And then we ought to ask ourselves another question that he asked at the end of chapter, chapter 2. What is one thing that you can do to improve your intake of God's Word? And I don't ask that just to ask it because he asked it. I ask that to think about it right now. What is one thing you can do to improve your intake of God's Word? Maybe write it down. Maybe text it to yourself. Put it in your little notepad. But then take it another step. What is one thing that you can do to meditate upon Scripture and enforce the truth of God upon your soul. To press it in there and to see the impact of what takes place. See, this is a lot bigger than just reading your Bible. Now, of course, we don't want to trivialize the notion of reading your Bible because it's not trivial. But at the same time, we don't want to trivialize the act itself either. By just saying, oh, I'm going to speed through this and speed through that and not have a clue in the world what I just read. Our focus is on getting something out of it. And getting something of use out of it. Will we? Do we have any sense of promise or assurance that we're going to get anything out of God's Word? Yeah, we have things like 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what is it that we're going to need when we walk into the uh, good works that God has laid out in front of us? Yeah, we need to be equipped by His Word. We cannot overemphasize the necessity of the intake of biblical truth. And that the intake of biblical truth and the outflow of biblical truth is what's going to transform any sense of our outreach from, you know, random acts of kindness to massive works of God's grace. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do nice things. It's a great thing to do nice things. But we should see that as an open door for the gospel. Because if all we do is a bunch of nice things for a bunch of lost people, all we've done is pat their backs on their way to hell. That's not what God has called us to do. That we would do the acts of kindness, do the acts of love, loving our enemies and doing good to those who hate us, praying for those who mistreat us, doing those things so that it would open the door for us to share with them. Why are you doing all this? Why do you love like this? 
Why do you not live your life in this way, but you live it in this way? What is the basis upon which you have framed your life? Truth. The truth of God's word. That's all I've got for this evening. Let me encourage you to read chapters 3 and 4 for next month.